Well, we're wrapping up our series today, Out of Water, by looking at this message on releasing bitterness. Let's just start with prayer. Father, I thank you so much for my friend Lee, for the difference he's made here at Spring Creek, for what you're about to do in his life and how you're going to use his leadership to make a difference in the lives of very vulnerable people in Houston. I pray, God, that you would bless and anoint all the details of his move and relocation and the job and all of that kind of stuff. I just pray that you're going to open doors and, and create opportunities he never even thought of before. I also thank you, God, for our young people, for their leadership, for championing this cause and for wanting to make a difference in the world and ch choosing to walk and raise money and raise awareness about what's happening in a part of the world that many of them will never see and among people they will never know personally until eternity when they approach them and they say, thank you for caring enough about me that even though you did not know me, you still love me and you helped to raise money so that my life could be changed. I thank you, God, that we have young people that embody that spirit. Now today, God, as we look at this message, I pray that you'll have complete freedom in this room to do what you do best. In Jesus' name, amen. So Webster's Dictionary offers us a definition of the word bitter, and this is it. Distasteful or distressing to the mind, exhibiting intense animosity, harshly reproachful, marked by cynicism and rancor, intensely unpleasant. Basically, bitterness is a characteristic that reveals itself in a lot of unpleasant ways. We would say a bitter taste is hard to swallow. A bitter cold is hard to bear. A bitter truth is hard to hear, and bitter enemies are hard to take. There's something about bitterness. It has an edge to it. There's a hardness to the emotion of bitterness. One psychologist described bitterness like this, a chronic and pervasive state of smoldering resentment, one of the most destructive and toxic of human emotions. So what causes bitterness? Well, let me just say right up front, bitterness always involves the actions of someone else. Now, those actions may be real or imagined. They might be big. They might be small. The size of the sin is inconsequential. More important than the size, and even more important than the objective reality of the offense, is how close we are to the person we think who's wronged us. For instance, if Congress does something morally repulsive, we might get angry, we might go on a tirade, we might post it all over Facebook, but we don't get bitter. Why? We're not close to Congress. They're not our friends. I'm not sure if they have friends anywhere, honestly, but, <laughs> but there's no relationship there. Bitterness doesn't depend on how great the evil is. Instead, it depends on relationship. Either how close that person is to me or how much I wish we had a relationship. That's why we feel bitter toward moms and dads, brothers and sisters, Husbands and wives, children, boyfriends, girlfriends, roommates, bosses, employees, co-workers, and sometimes even God. Bitterness is often based on the proximity, the closeness of the person we feel that has wronged us. Bitterness is also very easy to recognize in other people and very difficult to recognize in ourselves. That's why it's important that you and I learn to recognize the signs of bitterness. And that's where I want to begin, by recognizing bitter roots. In the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, Scripture says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness is described as a root. Now remember, this whole series 
is about our thinking under our thinking, right? We're going to the, the things that lie beneath the surface. This is one of those things that lies beneath the surface of our life, and it often dictates how we think and how we act. A root is by its very nature hidden. It's underground. Roots never just remain roots, though, do they? Eventually, they break through the soil, they manifest, they show fruits. Roots produce fruits. What's hidden beneath the surface of your life will eventually always come out. That's why bitterness has to be uprooted, but it's also why it's difficult to deal with. And one of the main reasons it's difficult to deal with bitterness is because it hides, in particular, bitterness hides beneath outward conformity. Now, there's a perfect example of this in the Bible with a man in the Old Testament, and his name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel, the very first time we meet him in Scripture, is he is engaged in an act of worship. So get this, this man is known to be a man that's full of good and very godly advice, so much so that we read something about Ahithophel that I'm not sure is ever said about another Bible character. Listen to him described. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. Wow. To hear from this person, from Ahithophel, was like getting it straight from God. That's pretty amazing. That's high praise. In addition to that, we know he's a friend and trusted counselor to King David. But there's a bitter root in Ahithophel's heart. There's something underground, a resentment that he's harboring toward David. None of it shows None of it manifests. It's still doing its ugly work underground. This is one of the reasons it's so hard to uproot bitterness is because you can nurse it, not just for hours, not just days, not just weeks, but for years on end. You can nurse bitterness, and it doesn't necessarily manifest on the outside. It's a secret sin that refuses to remain secret. Now, the day Ahithophel's bitterness finally manifested was when David's son Absalom rebelled against his father. When, when Ahithophel sensed that David was vulnerable, when he saw that one of his own had already turned against him, he saw his chance to exact his revenge on David. And Ahithophel joins the rebellion against David. Out of his bitterness, Ahithophel gives to Absalom two pieces of advice. First, he tells Absalom, go sleep with your dad's wives, with his concubines. And he did it. And that act created a rift between father and son that literally would never heal. On top of that, the second thing he advised him to do was to kill his dad. Now, had that happened, had, had he followed through, he likely would have succeeded. But what happened is this. As David was fleeing the capital city because of this coup from his son, there was one of his loyal servants by the name of Hushai. Hushai wanted to leave the city with David because he was loyal to David, and David convinces him to stay behind and work against the assassination plot, which he does. And he convinces Absalom, it is not in your best interest to kill your father. And so he doesn't go through with it. When that happens, Ahithophel sees that his plan has failed, and it's only a matter of time before his lies and deceit are found out, so he goes home and he commits suicide. The Bible says he goes home and he hangs himself. That, too, is a powerful reminder of where bitterness leads. If you leave it unchecked in your life, its plan is to destroy you. Now, I haven't told you why Ahithophel was bitter. And I think you need to know. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. 
David cheated on his wife with Bathsheba. David treated Bathsheba like a plaything. Now, considering what happened, I get why Ahithophel's angry, don't you? I mean, mess with my grandkids. I mean, I'm a preacher. I don't know what I would do, but I don't think I'd be really happy. But bitterness was a choice he made, and it wasn't his only choice. You see, what Ahithophel did is he let his anger do a slow burn for nine years and did nothing about it. There are other things he could and should have done, not the least of which was confront David about these things. Now, remember what I told you about him in the beginning? He's the one character in the Bible who about whom is said to hear from him was like getting it straight from God. Now, imagine somebody with that reputation, somebody who's known for that. That person comes and, co and confronts you about a sin. You might just pay attention to that person, wouldn't you? This is a person who seems to get it directly from God all the time, and they say you've got a problem. And maybe had Ahithophel done that, David wouldn't have tried to hide his sin for the better part of a year and lived in total misery had Ahithophel just owned that I need to go and address this with David. But as it stands, hanging on it to hell in his heart did not hurt David. It hurt and destroyed Ahithophel. And that's the point. Which reminds me of the second reason that bitterness is so hard to dislodge. Bitterness wears a self-righteous mask. It may be big, it may be small. But as an offense burrows its way into our heart, we continually replay it in our minds so that it won't be easily erased. We retell our hurts to anybody and everybody who will listen. We enlist support. We build our coalitions. But all that does is push us deeper into resentment. Every time we hear the offending person's name, we cringe. We believe that what they did to us was deliberate and the offender's just full of meanness. There's a reason we like to paint people as being all bad. Because then I can justify what I do to them in response. I can justify that I totally destroy your character by going around town and gossiping about you and saying all these hateful things. We look for reasons, real and imagined, to dislike our villain. And with each new piece of information, we just add a new layer of bitterness. Now you can always tell a person who's trapped in bitterness because if you try to talk to them about it, what they'll say invariably is this, but you just don't understand what they did to me. In other words, we justify hanging on to it. That's the self-righteous mask I'm talking about. And the Apostle James addresses this in his book. Look at this. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James is talking about the worst possible kind of life. To brag about your moral superiority while harboring a bitter spirit. You see, bitterness loves to wear religious clothes. It loves to sound spiritual in order to justify hanging on to hate in the heart. Which leads us to this, that bitterness really is a choice. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the word for bitter is marar. And according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, marar means to be bitter or to strengthen and become strong. Now look at that definition for a minute. Those are opposite meanings, aren't they? To be bitter or to become strong? You've probably heard the statement before that hurts can make you bitter or better, right? It's the same concept behind this word. That, that when something happens that hurts you, it has the capacity to produce bitterness. But that's a choice we make. It has the capacity to make us stronger. And that's a choice we make. And what this comes down to is the choice we're making. Let me illustrate this with a verse from the Old Testament. In Exodus 1, 14, the, the Bible says they, it's speaking about the Egyptians, made their lives, the Hebrews, 
bitter. They made their lives bitter. Now that last word in that verse is marar. So this verse, what it's talking about is how the Jews, because they were enslaved in Egypt, they're mistreated, they're oppressed, they're made to do strenuous manual labor. You could say that this awful treatment made them bitter, or you could say, and there's a good number of Old Testament scholars that agree with this, that a better translation of this verse might be, by imposing hard labor, they only toughened the Hebrews. They made them stronger. In other words, the circumstances that were designed to produce bitterness and possessed all the necessary ingredients to do that didn't have that effect. Why? Because the grace of God intervened so that the circumstances that should have created bitterness instead just made them stronger. You can be bitter or you can get better. And that's entirely up to us. So the implication of this is this. Bitter people like to blame their bitterness on the person who hurt them. That's not true. Bitterness is an improper response to hurt. Nobody makes you bitter. You make you bitter. It's a choice we make in regards to hurt. I get bitter, I get better. I get bitter, I get stronger. It's a choice. Which leads us to this. Let's talk about the consequences of bitterness. Now, every time I go to see my family doctor, she tells me to roll up my sleeve. Why? Because she wants to check for the silent killer, which is high blood pressure. High blood pressure, uh, it, it, the reason it's called the silent killer is because you can have high blood pressure and not feel it and not know it. And all the while you have it, it's doing damage to all your internal organs, your eyes, I mean everything. Some years back when I was diagnosed as having high blood pressure, I was put on medication for that. But the first thing I did is go out and buy a medical cuff so that I could check my blood pressure at home. I don't want to be a casualty of the silent killer. Well, in the same way that... Blood pressure is the silent killer to the body. Bitterness is the silent killer to your spiritual and emotional life. For many people, bitterness is the cause of sleepless nights, ulcers, irritability, angry words, lost friendships, ruined marriages, separated families, you name it. So let's talk about the major blowbacks that come from nursing bitterness. First, it will dominate you mentally. It's an axiomatic law of life. If you maintain an ugly place in your heart, it will only get uglier. It will not get better. The Bible says it like this. You are only hurting yourself with your anger. Another word for that is to say that bitterness is self-induced misery. How about Hebrews 12? Lest a root of bitterness springing up trouble who? You. Bitterness doesn't trouble the person you're bitter at. It does more damage to the, the, the person in which it's contained than the person upon whom we try to pour it. It does incredible damage to us. I love the way Joanna Weaver said it. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Or how about this from the famous poet Maya Angelou. Bitterness is like cancer. It eats upon the host. Or even Alana Stewart. Bitterness and resentment only hurt one person. And it's not the person we're resenting. It's us. Now many of you probably recognize the name Reuben Hurricane Carter. There was a famous movie about his life called The Hurricane. It starred Denzel Washington. Great movie. Carter was a boxer who was wrongly convict, convicted for a triple homicide. He spent 22 years in prison paying the price for someone else's crime before he's finally exonerated. Now imagine if that was you. Imagine that you went to prison for 22 years. 22 years of your life gone. 22 years of not seeing your kids grow up. Imagine what that might do to you. 
Carter says that the number one question, the most frequently asked question he gets is, are you bitter? And this is what he says about that. If I've learned nothing else in my life, I've learned that bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. And for me to permit bitterness to control or infect my life in any way whatsoever would be to allow those who imprison me to take even more than the 22 years they've already taken. Now that would make me an accomplice to their crime. You see, what Carter understood is that somewhere along the line, pain and hurt and wrongdoing has to be punctuated. We have to put a period where we're tempted to put a comma. Where we want it to continue on, we've got to say, it's over, it's done. Carter believed that 22 years was long enough. So he walked away a free man, not just from a prison, but from what he could have easily done, a self-imposed prison in bitterness. It reminds me a lot of Nelson Mandela. You know, Mandela spent years, hard labor, breaking rocks in this terrible sun, South Africa on Robben Island. And when he finally walks away, he says this, As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. If we constantly rehearse how we've been victimized, then what happens is nursing our wrongs becomes a way of defining ourselves. So we become victims, not so much of somebody else's wrongdoing, but of our own thinking. Friends, I just want to tell you from the heart, it's easy to righteously obsess about our injuries and our outrage. To proclaim our innocence and virtue because we've been wrong. There's a certain level of gratification that we feel because I feel better than or morally superior to the person who hurt me. In fact, that's an intoxicating feeling. And we've got to own that. That when somebody hurts us, we feel better than them. And we have to get to a point where we have to say, really, what is this doing to my own life hanging on to this bitterness? I love the way Gary Collins said it. He said, when people get angry, they often go through the day meditating on the cause of their anger. Do you ever find yourself replaying a conversation over and over in your mind? I've learned for me, when I start doing that, it's a sure tip-off that something is trying to put roots deep in my soul. You know, I, I, I've t said this many times, bitterness remembers details. You say, well, I just have a good memory. Well, you know, you might have a good memory, but memories aided by review, review, and more review. There are some things you remember really well because you've rehearsed it so many times in your mind. You've gone over that conversation. You remember every word, every nuance, the attitude, the looks on the face, everything, because it's become a part of you. And those are the things that are the sure tip-off that we're allowing bitterness to take root. It's easy, friends. It's easy to get hooked by bitterness. There's a second real consequence of bitterness. It will depress you emotionally. Bitterness is a depressant. You will never meet a happy, bitter person. Amen? I mean, you won't. You, I mean, again, we can recognize bitterness in other people a lot more than we can in ourselves. But if you ever meet somebody that's bitter, it's like, wow, you know, stay away. <laughs> Criticism, cynicism, negativity, pessimism. These are the marks of a bitter person. Bitterness doesn't just affect that person. It's this cloud that affects everyone around them. Dr. Gerald Jampolsky is a man who writes a lot of books on love and healing. And he often does seminars for people going through divorce. And in his seminar, he will often ask how many of you have not fully forgiven an ex? And he says, on average, 75% of the people raise their hand. And then he says this, ironically, anger ties you to your ex-spouse even if you marry someone else. Now, in case you haven't figured this out yet, bitterness is a form of bonding. It's actually more powerful than superglue. 
you become inextricably bound to the person who's hurt you most. And you got to ask yourself, is that what I really want? Do you want to be tied forever to the person you think has hurt you, disappointed you, let you down, betrayed you? If you don't want to be tied to them, then we've got to release that through forgiveness. I came across this quote. There's no attribution anywhere I could find. It's an anonymous quote, but it's too good to pass over. Unforgiveness is choosing to stay trapped in a jail cell of bitterness, serving time for someone else's crime. Or how about this? It will debilitate you physically. You've probably heard of Dr. Redford Williams. He's with Duke University Medical Center. He's often on television programs talking about medical findings. He said this, people who harbor hostility and anger are five times more likely to die of heart disease and six times more likely to die prematurely from other causes. The University of Tennessee did one of the most extensive studies on women and anger that's ever been done, and they discovered that many health problems, depression, headaches, obesity, Autoimmune diseases are the direct result of allowing unresolved anger to fester. Now, I'm not saying every sick person is bitter or every bitter person is sick, but I am telling you, you nurse bitterness long enough, it will begin to show itself physically in your life. Fourth consequence of bitterness, it will drain you relationally. Listen to how Deuteronomy 29 describes it. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away for this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now this passage first begins with a series of relationships, man, wife, family, tribe, and that's the way bitterness works. Bitterness always spreads through our relational network. Why is that? Because bitterness loves to seek reinforcement. Once we're hurt, many of us, we immediately go in search of vindications of our feelings. Have you felt this way before? When you've been around this person, have you ever seen this? Have you ever noticed this kind of stuff? We go and do that. We dwell and we retell. I dwell on it. I keep playing it over and over. And then I retell it because this is the way I allow it to stay alive and I let it grow. Pastor Beth Moore, she calls this out. She says, bitterness refuses to be miserable alone. It reminds others continually what a rotten deal it got. To continually dwell on injuries, especially to tell it to people who are not a part of the solution. Let's call that what it is. That's sympathy seeking. That's not somebody trying to remedy a hurt in the heart. This is what the Bible says. The bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That word for defilement is not a pretty word. It means to pollute, to corrupt, to deprave. What it's saying is, is that bitterness will never just stay in your life. It will leak out and it will poison your relationship network. The final and most dangerous consequence of all is it will damage you spiritually. When I hang on to bitterness, I grieve the heart of God. Listen to the Bible. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Get rid of all bitterness. Many of us, we get so caught up in how we've been wronged and we feel so righteously superior to the people that wronged us that we don't even consider how God's heart breaks because ours does not. I grieve the heart of God that's full of love when I choose to hang on to bitterness. Our unwillingness to let go of a hurt doesn't just hurt us. I'm telling you, it hurts God. And that's reason enough for a believer in this room to never hang on to bitterness. But it's not the only spiritual consequence either. Look at this that Paul writes. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity in the original Greek means a foothold. 
What he's telling us is unresolved anger is one of the ways you and I actually invite the devil into our life. We invite him in. When I say, I'm not going to resolve this, when I'm going to let this fester, when I'm going to sink into my resentment, I give the enemy a foothold in my life so he has opportunity to wreak havoc. Priscilla Shire nailed it. Listen to this. If I were your enemy, I'd use every opportunity to bring old wounds to mind as well as the people, events, and circumstances that caused them. I tried to ensure that your heart was hardened with anger and bitterness, shackled through unforgiveness. It's why Dr. King rem reminded his generation, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. So in our time remaining, let's talk about what it takes to uproot bitterness. And there's a passage of scripture in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 31 through 5-2, that's going to be the basis of this last section. It says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, there are three things in this verse that we're told to do with bitterness. The first is, get rid of it. He literally says, get rid of all bitterness. It's probably the hardest thing to get rid of it, to let it go. Why? Because I love that feeling of being powerful, and I love the feeling of being morally superior. It's hard to relinquish what we consider to be a superior position of righteous victimhood. That's a pleasurable feeling. And so we've got to let it go, but we've got to call it what it is. Gregory Popak says this, bitterness is unforgiveness fermented. I wonder what progress we'd make against bitterness if we really started calling it what it is, which is unforgiveness. And we said, the real problem in my heart is I can't forgive instead of that I'm bitter. Because unforgiveness is the underlying problem. We could make headway this way because we've been commanded to forgive. So how do you get rid of bitterness? You forgive the hurt, the slight, the injustice, the wrong. You say, but they don't deserve it. I agree with you. They don't deserve it. But forgiveness is not about them. It's about you. Forgiveness is a gift that we give to ourselves to stop picking at the scab and let the wound heal. This is why we forgive. We forgive to release the prisoner, and then we realize the prisoner's been us all along. This is for your benefit. It's your soul that's at stake. Dr. Fred Luskin, this is a secular researcher, Stanford University, the Forgiveness Project, but he gets it. Listen to what he said. Forgiveness means becoming a hero instead of a victim in the story you tell. So what are you going to do? Are you going to spend the rest of your life being a victim of this person's callousness, of their betrayal, of how they hurt you, how they did all these awful things to you? Are you going to be the hero in this story by being the first one to do what Jesus told you to do? That I'm going to do it the Jesus way. That I'd rather give up on trying to collect an uncollectible debt. And you realize it's an uncollectible debt, don't you? When somebody hurts you many times, they're not going to acknowledge it. They've got this wound in their life that they can't see what they've done to you. So you're holding on to something thinking that maybe one day they'll confess. Maybe one day they'll say, I'm sorry. Maybe one day they'll acknowledge what a, you know, what they've been to me. You know, that's what you're hoping for. It's an uncollectible debt, my friend. And the sooner you write it off, the better. The sooner you release it, lay it at Jesus' feet, say, Jesus, I'm going to release the emotional consequences of this. 
because I'm not going to be tethered to it for the rest of my life. I want that incident, and I want that person to go into the past forever. Second thing we do is we practice the alternative. Paul tells them instead of being full of anger and malice and bitterness, he says, be kind and compassionate toward one another. Kindness is to treat people the way they should be treated instead of the way they deserve to be treated. And compassion means to get inside another person, to see life from their perspective, to get in their shoes, not to just see them through a lens that's fouled by hate. Now, it's hard to do that, and it's hard to hear this because we want the bad guy to get what's coming to them. We want them to suffer like they made us suffer. It's hard to release into God's hand the sinner who sinned against us. But when God has to work in a hardened sinner's life, what does he do? We've already looked at this verse in this series. The Bible says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If there's any hope for that person who hurts you, it's not in them getting what they deserve. It's in them getting what they don't deserve, which is the kindness of God that can cause them to re-examine their life and their thinking and how that's landed them in the place that they are. That's the best hope because it was our hope too. The only thing that could change our lives was the kindness of God breaking through our stubbornness to set us free from this web of sin. Amen? And if we believe it works for God, then we got to believe it works for other people. So we release people into God's hands to do what God does best. Now, I know a lot of you have a list of suggestions of what God can do, and feel free to offer that to him, but you might just find that God's just going to love that person like they've never been loved before because he's in the redemption business. He's in the healing business. He's in the forgiveness business, and for me, I'm really glad that he does that. The final thing that we're called to do is to be like Jesus. He says, forgive each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's the command. Be imitators of God. It's really interesting. Bishop Desmond Tutu, I don't know if you've ever read his book. It's called No Future Without Forgiveness. It is a holy book. This is about what happened in South Africa during apartheid and what it would take to heal that country of egregious wounds, deep, profound wounds. And what he discovered was the ancient power of forgiveness. That right this wrong would take truth and reconciliation. And that's what we call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It worked so well in South Africa that it's been used in every hellhole around the world. It's been used in Palestine between Jewish and Palestinians. It's been used in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants. It's been used in Rwanda. Truth and reconciliation. It's a powerful concept. But Tutu at the height of kind of what he was doing, of understanding it was going to take confession and forgiveness rather than bitterness and revenge to move the country forward, one of the critics about Tutu's life said this, you would think that by the time one had gotten to be Tutu's age, he would have learned how to hate a little more. But there's this problem with Desmond. He actually believes the gospel. Wouldn't you love for that to be your greatest criticism of your life? That people don't think of you, well, you know, he's just like everybody else. He wants his pound of flesh. No, Tutu, he believes the gospel. He believes that what Jesus calls and models and empowers his people to do is to forgive even the most heinous of hurts that make us bitter. And when Tutu talks about forgiveness, he speaks as one who's lived this reality. I love the way he describes it. Forgiveness is drawing the sting in the memory, drawing out the sting in the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. That's what forgiveness does. It takes the hurt out. So the Greek 
There's this Greek word, this is uh, this verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, that Greek word for record of wrongs is a bookkeeping term. It means to make an, a, a, uh, an, an entry in a, a ledger. Now, that's great for businesses to do. You've got to keep track of the money that's coming in, the money's going out, and what you're selling, your product, all that stuff. But it's terrible in relationship. You don't want to make entries in a ledger for a relationship. And a lot of us may not physically write down our hurts, but, man, we've got our mental list, don't we? We can work it through right now. We know who we're mad at. We know who hurt us. We know how they hurt us. We know what we'd like to see happen to them. We're keeping a ledger, and the Bible says, hey, love doesn't do that. The more you hang on to your pain, the more it just pains you. You become the pain you feel. You know, a lot of us don't let go of pain because we feel entitled to it. We feel entitled to our hurt, entitled to our misery. And the sooner you learn that's just useless baggage, the better. Carmen Coyote said this, life like certain airlines is like certain airlines, charges heavily for all the useless baggage you choose to drag around. We all carry heavy, unwanted baggage around with us, past hurts, ancient grudges. Life charges us for all of this, not just in terms of feeling hassled, anxious, and weighed down, but via the mistakes and messes we make because our minds are clogged by all this useless stuff. So forgiveness is saying, I don't want to nurse this hurt even one more day. I've already taken the hit, I don't need to keep hitting myself. So if you really want to know how to motivate yourself about whether or not it's time to let go of hate, and by the way, it's been fascinating to hear the confessions after these services. I had a man come to me last night. He took out his phone. He had a half a dozen pictures of what his ex had done to his apartment before they split up. He says, I'm deleting them all right now, forever. Good choice. A lot of people are doing business. I've had some people talk about being abused and choosing in this service to lay it at Jesus' feet, to let it go. He said, I've already been hurt. I don't need to keep hurting myself. So here's some questions for you. If you really think you need to hang on to that hurt, is your life better because you're withholding forgiveness? Do you rest easier at night because you continue to be angry? You feel like something is owed to you, an apology, an acknowledgement, but what if you never get it? What if they never admit it? What if they're never remorseful? Are you going to let that person decide when you get better? That's the question. I don't think the people who hurt us get to make that decision. I think we do. I think we make the decision of when to let go. So let me tell you a true story. When I pastored here, when I first came to Texas, I almost left within the first year. I was a youth pastor under the pastor I most admired, my spiritual father in the ministry, the man under whom I had announced my calling to preach at the age of 15. And when he resigned, I took over that church. They voted unanimously for me to be the pastor. Tiny church, South Garland, Kingsley Road, behind what used to be the Hypermart. And I pastored there for four and a half years. But after I took over that church, he didn't like that I had taken over in his place and he began to actively sabotage me in the ministry, began to work against me, tried to even get deacons to vote against my ideas and all this kind of stuff, was creating all kinds of havoc in the church. Now, I was fortunate that the leadership of the church saw through that as bitterness and did not side with him. But I can't tell you how it felt for my spiritual father to turn on me like that. It wounded me. It hurt me deeply. 
I'll never forget one day I was sitting at the desk in the upstairs of that church building. It was his old desk. And I had one drawer, the left top drawer, that would never close fully. I thought, what is, you know, every other drawer closes in this, and this one doesn't. So I finally take the drawer out to figure out, you know, what's the problem? And there's a big wad of paper in the back. So I pull out the paper, and the one paper I find, I open up, and it is a list of all the key families in the church and this pastor had made this list and what they had done to wrong him. He literally made a physical list. I take it out, I look at it, and I said, he's a dead man. I mean, all I have to do, show this to these families, and he's done. And I literally got that out of my mouth, and I heard God say to me in that moment, and if you do it, you're just like him. And you know what happened? I shredded that letter, and not a family ever saw what was written on there about them. I had to work through that hurt of a man I trusted, a man I loved, who betrayed me, hurt me, actively opposed me. And I just, I, I said, God, I'm, I'm laying this at your feet. You've forgiven me. You're going to have to do in his life what needs to be done. I'm not in charge of that. But he can't hurt me anymore. He's gone. And I let this go. And, you know, about 10 years ago, I got a letter from him acknowledging what he had done, which I never anticipated, which... I honestly didn't need, I didn't need for him to acknowledge it. When I got it, I thought, well, that's good for him. Because by that time, I was already blessing his life and being able to say, you know, God's going to do in his life what needs to be done. I'm not in charge of that. But I do know my God well enough to know that he's probably not going to do some of the things I've dreamed up of happening, you know. <laughs> he's probably just going to love him like he's never been loved before. And help him get through that really wounded state that would cause him to lash out and hurt other people that were vulnerable. That's what really needed to happen in his life. And I'm really happy that that happened. And you know what? I don't know what will happen to the people who hurt you. I don't know what happened to the people who betrayed you. And you may go the rest of your life without an acknowledgement. And that's okay. You don't need that. You know what you need? You need to forgive them the way Christ forgave you. We're going to wrap up this service. And during this last song, we're going to take communion. This meal is representative of the forgiveness of Christ, his body and his blood that were shed for you. We take this meal in celebration of the greatest miracle that happened for each and every one of us, that we brought all of ourselves in all of our brokenness and our messiness, and we laid it at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said, I forgive you, it's gone. I believe in that miracle to change me, and I believe that that miracle is strong enough that when I give that to other people, that can change them too. And so I pray that you would use this time before you partake of this meal to say, Jesus, I want to take this hurt, this hook that's got its way in my heart right now, and I just want to lay at your feet and say, Jesus, I'm forgiving this, I'm letting it go, and as I move into the future, anytime I remember it, anytime the enemy reminds me of it, I'm going to say, I laid that at the feet of Jesus. It can't haunt me anymore. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what we've been learning through this series, that there is so much more than what's obvious to the eye, that there is something beneath the surface of our life that often drives our thinking and our behavior. And bitterness is one of those really hard pills to swallow. It's one of those things that easily gets embedded in our souls. It's got hooks in it. And something about us, God, that just loves the feeling that we're better than the people that, we, that hurt us, that we have a superior position to them, that we're holding something over their head, that they owe us like they've never owed us before. But God, all of that is just a mind game. It's not real. 
And so we do what you did for us. You entered our brokenness. You entered what we found impossible to eradicate on our own. And you forgave us. And through your forgiveness and great love, we have been set free to be a different kind of person than what we've been. I pray for anybody here, God, who has continued to hurt themselves over something that hurt them months ago, weeks ago, years ago, that they would just lay that at your feet today and say, Jesus, as best I can, I forgive them. I'm laying this at your feet. I'm trusting God that you're going to do in that person what needs to be done, and I don't need to be in charge of that. I want to move into the future absolutely free, set free from chains, set free from prison bars, free to be able to go through life and let that go into my past forever. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.